1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Random Melcher, and I'm very pleased to be speaking today to the author of the book titled, I Give These Books, the history of the Yale University Library from 1656 all the way to 2022. The book was published in 2022, uh, in fact, by Oak Knoll, and I have with me the author to tell us all about um, the Yale University Library and its many iterations over space and time, David Allen Richards. Dave, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. I look forward to this.
0: I do too. Before we get into the book itself, though, would you mind introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this? Yes.
1: Um, I'm a graduate of Yale College. Uh, I'm a graduate of this law school. Uh, in between, I uh, studied as a Keesby Scholar at Cambridge from 1967 to 1969, where I read modern history, mostly under Norman Stone. And um, at Yale College, my major was American Studies. And um, I have also served as the chair of the Yale Library Associates, which is the alumni group which supports the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library. And um, as part of a capital campaign that the university is now mounting over the past uh, six years with two years more to go to raise $8 billion. And with a gathering in London at the Savoy Hotel and particularly for the library at Dr. Johnson's house, It was asked what we as a library might give to unique donors during this capital campaign. Back in 2017, I published a history of Yale's uh, famous or infamous uh, secret societies, uh, Skull and Bones first among them, um, which have many famous graduates, including um, the two presidential candidates George Bush, who was the year behind me, and John Kerry, who was the year ahead of me, uh, running for leader of the free world uh, uh, back in 2000 at a time when this club had only 800 living graduates. So there's a lot of conspiracy theories about it. But I wrote that book and spent eight years doing it in the Yale archives. And when it was suggested that the library should have something to give to its donors during the capital campaign. And the suggestion came forward that we needed, perhaps was there a history of the library? It turned out there wasn't, Um, and I held my hand up. And I spent about two years writing it, and COVID, of course, slowed things down in terms of publication, but it did come out this, uh, this last May.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for introducing us to sort of that backstory and a bit about the library today. Of course, we'll get there, but by the end, let's start kind of right at the beginning of the history of the Yale library. Um, And as one might expect, if it's a university library, I mean, the order of that phrase, right? University and then library, except that that's not what what happened with Yale. Can you walk us through how and why the library came before the college?
1: Uh, I can, indeed. I can't expect that there are many Yale University graduates in your international audience, although there are probably a few. And if so, they know that the founding date of what was called at its founding, the Collegiate School, is 1701, 1701, and my subtitle is 1656, which is only a few years after Harvard College was founded in 1636, the oldest American university and the first of the colonial colleges on the East Coast, and uh, well before William and Mary, founded in 1696 down in Williamsburg. Um, And so that does raise a question mark. But it turns out That what hadn't been noticed before by historians writing separately of Harvard and of Yale was that John Harvard and a man named John Davenport, who was the first minister of the first church in the New Haven colony, came across on the same two ship convoy in 1638 led by a boat called the Hector. We don't know what the second boat was, but on that boat, John Harvard had a couple of cow herds and some cows. He was the son of a butcher, and the Harvard yard is carved out of the Cambridge cowyard. But John Davenport's flock, coming from a parish in the city of London, businessmen who were certainly Puritans, but also businessmen, discovered that the group that had come to Boston had sort of sucked up all the various ports in Massachusetts. And so Harvard and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, John Davenport and the head of the rest of the parishioners, a man named Theophilus Eaton, who became the first governor of the New Haven colony, sailed south up the Long Island Sound, did a deal with the Quinnipiac Indians, and founded New Haven. Just a few years later, Theophilus's younger brother, Samuel Eaton, was summoned back to England to work for the Protectorate, a Puritan operation, as you may all remember, and so in leaving, having brought his own precious books, he left his books to his brother Theophilus, in trust for the founding of a college in New Haven. We know this because of Theophilus's will. Samuel never came back from working for Cromwell, and that will was proven in 1656, but Samuel went back to England in 1640, just two years after Harvard was founded, and if that was his point, leaving books for a future college in New Haven He probably gave those books for that future college in 1640, just two years after Harvard College was founded. And so while Yale did not have a college for another 70 years, the library, the gift of the library, the notion of the library as the foundation stone of a future college in the colony of Connecticut was laid down, as it were, in 1656, hence my date.
0: Absolutely fascinating as a start. Thank you for taking us through that. What books then were in this initial library?
1: Um, One may not have thought them to be valuable, although one of the professors at Yale Divinity School writing about the history of the Divinity School at Yale noticed that they were more valuable than cordwood that these had been purchased over time. And John Davenport had three volumes of Calvin published in Geneva, a hundred years before he boarded the boat to come to America. They were Latin texts. They were theological texts. And the founding of Yale in 1701, or the collegiate school as it was to be called, by 10 ministers, nine of them graduates of Harvard, that was the only place they could possibly have gone to college in the United States, or I'm sorry, the American colonies, Um, purportedly at a trustees meeting in Branford, Connecticut, up the coast from New Haven, each brought one of their folios 40 in number, the legend has it, and piled them on the table at the first meeting of the Yale trustees, each of them announcing, I give these books. Those books are in the Rare Book Library today with the signatures of their donors. It seems because this story was recollected many years after the fact, in 1765, by a rector of Yale, who was afraid that the politicians up in Hartford were wanting to interfere down in New Haven. And so he argued that the gift of the books by these ministers was the foundation of the college, preceding whatever act may have been enacted in the colony's capital of Hartford all those years later. This turns out to be a wonderful legend, not quite true, but it is true in a way. That is, books were given, they were given for a library in a newly founded college. And so while the details are challengeable, the fact is not. And on the outside of the Sterling Memorial Library, the main library at Yale today, built almost a hundred years ago, a massive Gothic structure, heavily ornamented, there is a frieze carved into the entablature, which shows the 10 ministers delivering their books to the parsonage table in Brantford. It's a lovely legend. Yale will always sort of celebrate it and certainly won't remove that image from the library. It just didn't quite happen that way.
0: (laughs) And that's why we have properly researched books to (laughs) bust. (laughs) Yes, exactly. To bust some myths. Um, I'm wondering if I could ask you about something that is true and yet really quite unbelievable in a sense, until, of course, I read further and you explained it. Um, You discuss in the book that, quote, for Yale's first half century, not a penny had been spent for the buying of books for the library, yet the collection was the best in New England. This seems unbelievable, but how is it possible?
1: How it's possible, and I wasn't aware of this until I started researching, is that as The great Harvard historian Samuel Eliot Morrison pointed out no Oxford College, no college at Oxford or Cambridge in the period of the founding of the colonies from the 1590s uh, up to the mid 17th century in the 1650s ever paid for their own books. There was no budgeting, no funding, no notion that an educational institution had to acquire titles somehow as they came out. And so the formula I give these books was just as true for the Oxford and Cambridge colleges. John Davenport was an Oxford graduate. John Harvard was a Cambridge graduate from Emmanuel College. Um, on his deathbed, dying six months after he got here, right in front of his wife and with no will, left his entire library and half his estate to a college in Boston, which was begun in Cambridge, and named after him in thanks for his gift. In Yale's case, the 10 ministers were doing something similar. But because there was no money for that, Elihu Yale's gift of bales of cotton auctioned up in Boston were meant to pay for a building. called after him, Yale College, and then the school after the building was needed because the college had run out of money to build the building, to finish it. And in consequence, in order to build their library, they needed to find donors. And as there was only one printing press, Bay Psalm book in 1638 was the first book printed in British North America. Those had to come from England and the colonies all had an agent. Famously, the most famous was Benjamin Franklin during the revolution, but all the colonies had an agent and Harvard had a graduate called Jeremiah Dummer who went to Europe, earned not one but two PhDs there, but failed to get an appointment either at Harvard College to teach or even a preacher's pulpit in New England and dedicated his life to representing in England some of the colonies. And while there, on behalf of Yale College, solicited gifts, including a copy of the optics from Isaac Newton, a copy, a set of The Spectator from Addison, books from John Sloan, books from John Locke, which were shipped across the ocean. It's thought that probably a fifth of them perished in the water, but eventually were gathered together, and that became the nucleus of the Yale Library, adding to the books that John Davenport and Samuel Eaton had brought, as well as the ministers who came later with their own libraries.
0: And thus, the seemingly inexplicable has been revealed. So thank you for taking us through that. Um, As with, I imagine Yale's not the only university, um, but it is, I admit, where I went to do my undergraduate study. Um, so I was very spoiled by the fact that Yale does not have just one library. Um, Yale has many different libraries. We've already mentioned Starling and Beinecke. You talk about in the book that there used to be different ones as well, uh, mainly student society libraries. What similarities and differences were there between sort of the main one and and the ones that were for student societies, both in terms of their contents and how students engaged with them.
1: Uh, That's a great story. And even more to the modern reader unknown, although happily there were PhD theses I could call upon, the first literary agency in American colleges were called literary societies, at Yale, the first one was called Lenonia, named after the goddess of flax from which paper is made. And on a sort of rivalry principle which repeated itself, a few years later, one was formed called Brothers in Unity. Down at Princeton, the pattern was repeated with the uh, uh, Cleosophic, now known as Cleo at Princeton. Its building still there. And uh, uh, the Whig, uh, which was founded uh, not least by our fourth president James Madison and other Princeton undergraduates, and up at Harvard, third place here, the Institute of 1770, and in its first version, Hasty Pudding. So all the American colleges, and it was repeated at Penn and other places, had these literary societies, and. What these boys did was, and they were all boys then, of course, at these colleges, the books gathered by Dummer and uh, uh, otherwise acquired were not books of emotion. They were not literature. They were not drama. They were not rhetoric. These had nothing to do with the curriculum at the time, and these were, of course, what the boys wanted to read. And so they taxed themselves. One of the first uh, gifts was made by Nathan Hale, Yale's famous spy in the American Revolution in 1769, about eight or nine years before he was hanged for treason as a spy. And one of the things that he and his friends acquired was their own run of Addison and Steele and they bought Fielding, and they bought Smollett. And what they wanted to read were things not available for a long, long time in the Yale Library. And if you belonged to one, Lanonia or Brothers, as it was called for short, you could borrow from the other. You could take a book out for a week. You had to return it, of course, at the end. But their library was open every day the Yale Library wasn't opened every day. And the cherry on the top of that ice cream Sunday is that the faculty was allowed to borrow, and they borrowed their light reading from the literary societies. And the boys soon built up collections in numbers of this kind of literature that was larger than the Yale library itself. And by about the uh, beginning of the 19th century, they had 45,000 books, when Yale College official library only had 15,000. And up at Harvard, the literary societies there only had 5,500. And so these were the ways that the boys amused themselves And in due course, when the literary societies and when you came in to New Haven, you joined one or the other. They were the only extracurricular activity. And when there was finally a train in New Haven coming up to New Haven from New York, the heads of the societies met you down at the train station and recruited you. But eventually, because of Yale's secret societies, which began in the 1830s, skull and bones and scroll and key and the like, on which I'd written my first Yale history, became more popular because more exclusive. The literary societies faded. By that time, however, in a first purpose-built library building uh, called the Old Library now, and known to current Yalies as Dwight Hall, the head of social services, that building, built in 1843, the third university in America to have a separate library, University of South Carolina was first, 1840. Not Harvard, not Yale, not Princeton. Harvard in 1841, Yale in 1843, but Yale's was built with five front doors to accommodate at each end, sealed off from the primary library by fireproof walls, a library for Linonia and a library For brothers. And when the literary societies did disappear, their libraries, as their founding documents back in the 1760s and 80s, founded, they said, when we are no more, our books go to Yale College, which by then was officially from 1887 a university. And those books, after selling off the duplicates, were put into the main library. And there is a room in the Yale Library today called L&B. Most undergraduates don't even know what that stands for, but that's short, for Linonia and Brothers, and it's filled with overstuffed leather chairs, one of which I fell asleep in and had to pound on the door to be let back out. And its shelves have nothing but the fiction of the descendants, so to speak, of the books of plays and novels of the original libraries, and so a major room in the Sterling Memorial Library is still dedicated to the memory of those literary societies and to the type of literature, now of course paid for by the university, which students can relax with, as is thought necessary, of course.
0: I will admit it is my favorite room. Of all the Yale libraries, and um, the L&B room is still the best room. So I'm very glad that we've mentioned it.
1: And when you come over, Miranda, <laughs> we are spending ten million dollars to reopen it next year. It will be totally refurbished. It'll have Wi-Fi. It'll have air conditioning. It'll have a copy of Charles Murphy's famous painting La Bibliothèque of his father's library, the original of which is in the Yale University Art Gallery, with specially woven. Uh, rugs uh, from China, but looking very much like you remember it. So I hope you can
0: <laughs> Wow. I can't believe it gets even better. Um, now, I, being a massive library nerd, um, found the next section I'm going to ask you about fascinating. But of course, it does fall into the stereotypical trap of libraries having reputations of being very strict and very stern. And of course, sometimes they are. And in your previous answer, you sort of hinted at this fact that the library didn't used to always be open and there were rules about obviously borrowing and returning and things like that. What were some of the regulations that were implemented and enforced by the library throughout the 18th and 19th centuries?
1: A good question and an interesting comparison because it all revolves around what libraries thought of students and what library services should be to students. One anecdote I tell from the memoirs of a member of the class of 1831 is how he tells he wandered into the Yale Library and the librarian challenged him and said, what are you doing here, young man? And his response was to look at the books. And the librarian said, this is no place for a student. And it's really quite remarkable, but if your auditors will think back, we talk about keepers, book keepers, rare book keepers. The initial metaphor was for the library was for preservation and storage. That changed not until the rise of the PhD in America did the metaphor for the library come to be factory, for the manufacture of scholarship, based on widely learned printed books and even more important manuscript sources which could be used by scholars but for a long long time the students couldn't even enter whatever was the library and the first room was about 15 by 30 (laughs) with an open fireplace in a two-story wooden building and by 1740 Sophomores, juniors, and seniors, the last three years of the American four year course, were given access to the library, something that didn't happen up until Harvard, up at Harvard until 1765. Um, And uh, in consequence, it took quite a while for library services for the main library which was seen as something the faculty could use, but the students didn't really need it in a recitation system uh, to become a place where now, if you attend Yale College, you are the first week you are at school of your four years assigned a personal librarian whom you may repair to when you are working on a project or want to work on a project and find out what those resources are. In other words, the prototypical uh, bookkeeper uh, as a librarian, and this isn't just at Yale, of course, and I just use Yale as the example, becomes a situation in which you are now guided to the resources within the library. Um, in all the libraries, there are 15 different buildings in which there are collections, uh, which may be of use to you and so the notion of the librarian as a service provider as opposed to a curmudgeonly uh, preserver and defender of books that no student was prepared to remove from the shelves and when sterling memorial library was opened in 1932 and they brought the books over from what is still the old library, although now not a library anymore, some of those books were still trailing the chains that had bound them to the lecterns in the library. Um, And of course, now we've moved to something completely different with digital, which we can talk about later. Um, And the number of books available to Yale undergraduates under a borrowing system, which I can talk about is now 90 million, not all at Yale, but spread across 18 universities across the country, which will ship a book back if you need it. And even if it is on the shelf of the home library, free, and you can keep it for a month, and then it'll go back to Stanford or the University of Chicago or Harvard or wherever it came from. So, Even with digital riches, a library the size of a suitcase, uh, which we have actually with a computer and which was predicted back in 1871, one of the epigraphs in my book, you still can get hard copies of almost anything that is in any library and no American library other than the Library of Congress has ever been a library of record. It cannot be, doesn't aspire to be. Um, But there is not a title, if it is in any major American university, if you are at Yale or any of those universities that you cannot have within a week on your desk.
0: And this, dear listeners, is why I was very spoilt as an undergraduate um, and I've been mourning the loss ever since. Um, That obviously showcases just how much uh, the contents of the library today are hugely, wonderfully available for kind of any possible research or whatever need you might have. Um, But you talk about in the book that this has not always been the case, right? Similarly, with the idea of rules and regulations not being designed for student use initially as they now are, um, you mention in the book that this was especially an issue in the 18th century and the early 19th, that the contents, the types of books that were actually in the library weren't doing what they're doing now in terms of matching the needs and the interests of the college. Um, why were they so mismatched? How, when and why did they improve?
1: In the first instance, in the early 19th century and all through the 18th, the method of teaching was recitation. There was a student bookstore where you not only brought your, what the English would call tuck Um, uh, your little snacks, but also these uh, texts. Yale University professors started writing basic texts, algebra, biology, chemistry. Um, But it wasn't still a situation where you were expected to do independent research. Your marks were based on how well you recited back exactly what the Tutor had set down for you to do. And then, with the growth of American universities and professional schools, Yale renamed itself as officially legally a university in 1887 to indicate that more than simple undergraduate college was available at that date, in Yale's case, a law school a medical school and a divinity school and the first germs of a graduate school. And of course, if you're going to do original research for a PhD, you need to have something more than what other people have already published and printed. You need original material. You need, if a scientist, laboratories as well. Um, But you do need much more than what the undergraduates had been getting. And so Yale started giving out PhDs. And by the 1890s, 23, uh, uh, 90% of all American PhDs had been given out by Yale University. That reversed itself uh, or corrected itself in terms of demographics and size as other universities began churning out PhDs and following the same path Toward gathering manuscript materials, uh, creating art museums. Yale's was the first in the country, creating natural history museums, the Peabody at Yale, you may remember, um, uh, and analogs up at Harvard. Uh, and, uh, and then, meanwhile, uh, first at Harvard and then increasingly at Yale, the undergraduates began to be able to study something different, Um, not the same course, uh, cohort-like, all the way through the four years, but with electives, which led you to a major. And again, if you were going to have electives and specialized reading for less than the entire student body, the library also had to expand. Yale, it turns out, was the first library university university Uh, college library in the country to send professors abroad in 1805. And again, in 1822, a third professor was sent after that and actually died on the way over. Ocean voyages were perilous, but they'd send them off. And uh, the second uh, individual uh, had about $10,000 and brought back 6,000 volumes after spending eight months scouring Europe and buying up secondhand books which were needed to make for a first-class library. Other institutions, of course, followed in due course, um, and in doing so also not only got much of what had come to Yale in the 1800s, the classical authors, but now... German, French, Scandinavian, uh, Russian, and, and other uh, special uh, collections, and we get something much closer to uh, the university library uh, treasures that uh, and 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 depth and 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 uh, scope that we that we have today. And uh, the first list of books that. The librarian ever made up at Yale didn't come until about 1843. You could no longer hope that somebody would donate something or solicit something that you needed. You had to be proactive. Uh, By the 1850s, the librarian was asking for government documents to be distributed from the agencies uh, that were growing down in Washington. That, of course, got a lot bigger after the civil war and the centralization of the american government and the proliferation of cabinet offices which in agriculture and other areas began producing their own documents which were also needed in a university library so the number of books uh, began to grow substantially uh, with the trips to europe and the founding of the first library endowment fund in the United States, funded by the alumni. In due course, the first rare book uh, library alumni support group, buying rare books uh, for the special collections, which were then moved from Sterling into the Beinecke in 1963. And then the Beinecke has been Assembling, buying, or like my Kipling collection, the largest in the world anywhere, donated by alumni or by other donors um, to what, when it was built, the Beinecke in 1963, physically uh, the largest uh, rare book uh, library uh, uh, so dedicated uh, in the world. The Harry Ransom Center down at the University of Texas. Uh, named after a Yale PhD who went down there in the 20s and charmed a lot of money out of the Texas State Legislature with their oil revenues, uh, built a great collection uh, down there and has now a newer and larger building. But remarkably, you will remember um, uh, Miranda in the Beinecke its most remarkable architectural feature is the glass book stack in the center, rising eight stories.
0: Of which Harry stories Harry Ransom, are told.
1: <laughs> right. And the uh, Harry Ransom center, um, uh, 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 I'm sorry, the, the British library now has a glass book stack that's copied after the Beinecke. The Lyndon Mains Johnson library has a glass stack filled with the red boxes of his presidential papers. So that in itself has become an icon. And the new Performing Arts Center down at the World Trade Center at the tip of Manhattan, which opened up six weeks ago, is a glowing glass box, which looks remarkably like the Beinecke. So both architecturally, as well as with its extraordinary collections, about which we can talk if we have time, mm-hmm. it became separate from the main Gothic 1932 building about to have its 100th anniversary in the next few years um, with its own special place on the campus and for example what happens now is that there is an underground tunnel between the Beinecke and Sterling and there is a dedicated space in the tower which was built in Sterling in the northwest corner to originally display Yale's Gutenberg Bible and that's now in the Beinecke. And that part of that building in Stirling has been turned into a classroom and it is secure. And special collections, including, for example, St. Thomas More's prayer book from the Tower of London, with a prayer that he drafted and wrote on the bottom of the pages of that missal, can be carried underground. And brought into the secure location for the students to look at it. Handle the original materials. If you are writing a senior thesis and almost all Yale College students do, if it is in the humanities, that list of the topics goes to the Beinecke librarians and they will identify for the student collections which may be of use in researching that paper. And Yale is now into cultural preservation and four months ago introduced a system called um, LUX, L-U-X, which allows you to put in a search word, for example, Darwin. And then you can find in every Yale special collection, the British Arts Center, any prints or portraits of Darwin, Peabody Library, any fossils brought back by Darwin. The Yale Center for British uh, Art um, uh, with its plate books. Um, And so the notion is to spread the knowledge of what had been many separate card catalogs so that you can work all the way across all of the Yale collections and find everything all across the university that is useful for your project. The other challenge there, of course, is digital. Yale is now getting, the Beinecke is now getting digital archives of authors, which include, of course, 1960s floppy disks all the way up to current digital files. And the question becomes, how do you read that old material? So about 10 years ago, Yale hired someone from New Zealand who spent a lot of years buying old digital equipment on eBay, and Yale hopes to have up next year a system which allows you to put the floppy disk in at one end and come out through all its iterations in a modern computer on the other. In other words, saving what can no longer be read in some instances, the United States census uh, reels from 1960 can no longer be read by our Department of Commerce because there are no longer uh, videotape uh, uh, machines, recording machines, which allow them to be viewed. So Yale has taken a crack at at doing that as well. And the Lux system, which Yale introduced, is now being studied by the British Library and lots of other leading institutions, and that is learning, uh, technical learning, which Yale will share so that other collections can be used similarly. Again, out of the Yale Library.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much for taking us through such recent developments as well. As I said right at the beginning, the book says it goes up to 2022, and it really does. Um, If we think about kind of, I'd love to expand a bit on something you mentioned briefly just now um the that starling memorial the main library is coming up on um being 100 years old which can sometimes i remember take visitors aback because it looks like a gothic cathedral <laughs> and uh quite often the expectation might be that those are older than a mere 100 years um can you help us understand this why is it called starling memorial and why does it look like a cathedral
1: Uh, I can certainly address both those things. Um, The notion that the library, rather than the chapel, should be the heart of the university, a notion first nationally popularized at a Librarian's Congress after the American Civil War in 1865, uh, first uh, had its foundation at Yale with the old library, which is in the center of the old campus, the northernmost of the original settlers' nine squares. And then, of course, Yale spread uh, north uh, and a bit to the west as its science buildings were added. But the old library in the center of the old campus um, caused that shift. And the chapel on the old campus is now in the corner, and there was no chapel built after the one in the late 19th century. And the name and the gift that made it possible came from a graduate who was at Yale during the Civil War, a man named John William Sterling, the uh, founder of the American uh, law firm, Sherman and Sterling, uh, which actually recently merged with, uh, I believe Allen and Overy within these last couple of months. I don't know what the new name would be. Sterling's name may disappear, but it won't disappear from the uh, campus because Sterling was an extremely successful lawyer. Um, His primary client was uh, William Rockefeller, uh, John D. Rockefeller's uh, brother, but he also uh, took care of what became the leading, the founders and presidents of the leading gas, natural gas company in New York, uh, the leading uh, electric company, what we now know as Consolidated Edison. All these people were his his pallbearers. And he meanwhile, took many of these fees and invested in real estate in Westchester County, which is the wealthiest of the New York suburbs, uh, north of, of Manhattan. And um, at his death, the New York Times announced that his, in his will, he had left $15 million um, for the creation of an architecturally significant building on the Yale campus uh, and such other buildings as the funds might allow. When that estate was settled three years later. It was $18 million, and in modern terms, it was over $300 million, and the largest gift translated that way that Yale has ever received. And what was decided to happen and to put it in the center of the expanding campus was to build a memorial library to Sterling, and the Yale trustees were so invested that it be a beautiful structure that they lopped six stories off the original design, getting rid of room for what would have been two million books and making the library half filled on the day it opened, but ornamented it inside and out with extraordinary carvings uh, and and, uh, inscriptions and friezes inside and out. And yes, it has an ecclesiastical look, it has a nave, it has a garden with a faux monk's washing basin in the center of it, but the Gothic was hailed as being more flexible than the modernist skyscraper uh, functional styles of the 1920s. It was different as well, although designed by the same architect as the Lowe Library down in Columbia. And we had the Widener Library up at Harvard, and the Widener Library had been founded by Eleanor Widener uh, as a memorial to her son, which went down with the Titanic, who went down with the Titanic, um, in 1912, she left $3.5 million for the Widener Library. Uh, Sterling had just left $18 million. And of that amount, $7.2 million was used to build the library. But you have the Sterling Divinity School, you have the Sterling Law School, you have the Sterling Medical School. It was a gift that just kept on giving. And um, so the library is a memorial to John Sterling, and the Gothic actually worked out. I have a picture in my book of the Gilmore Music Library. That opened in 1991, but when I was there, that was an air shaft, and the construction materials were lifted over the library to fill that air shaft, and the stained glass windows that were on the outside of the library looking at the air shaft are now inside the Gilmore Music Library. And it fits quite nicely. It's, of course, not gothic on the inside, but that provided the expansion space and was partly what made people so upset because it was very gothic uh, and looks like uh, Oxbridge uh, intentionally. And Harkness uh, later funded... uh, Uh, The 10 Yale Residential Colleges, I don't know which you were in, Miranda, but they are scattered around the library. And the front steps of the library are very low. They only go up about three steps, avoiding the patron taxing monumental staircases of the Widener Library and the uh, uh, Low Library. And the innovative design that was done by James Gamble Rogers was that behind this nave, and the closer you get to the entrance of the library, the stack tower behind of 15 stories can no longer be seen, but it is basically a big steel box uh, uh, based on several tons of crushed stone. Um, And all of the user's rooms are in front of the stacks to the left and the right, the L&B Library, the major reading room, what had been the Reserve Book room, which is now the digital center uh, for the humanities. Um, and so you walk into this extraordinary building with its stained glass windows and its memorial friezes. That was something that cost $20 million to restore only about 12 years ago. Um, then uh, you do feel uh, like you are approaching uh, uh, within a cathedral. Uh, There is an alma mater uh, uh, mural at the top painted by the same artist that did the one down at the Columbia Library. And then you enter into the stacks and you no longer feel gothic and you go up in the elevator and you get your books if you choose to do that. So that is why it was named for Sterling as a memorial to him. It is such an architectural, extraordinary masterpiece uh, because the trustees wished to thank him for that. There's an entire paperback book of the stained glass windows within the library, which were all copied from ancient books, books of hours and uh, and uh, engravings and things like that from books that were within the uh, library. So it's a history of the book as you walk around looking at the, at the stained glass. But that contrasted, of course, in startling contrast to the very modern marble uh, uh, and granite white box across the street, the rare book library, to which, as I said, it is uh, joined underground. That that's how it got named, that's how it got funded, and that's how it got built.
0: Thank you so much for taking us through that. Um, In that answer, obviously, there's both kind of things that were built a while ago, and you mentioned some more recent efforts as well. Um, And in your previous answer, of course, talked about the massive um, digital expansion of the library and, of course, of the technological capabilities. How then has library spending changed over the last 5, 10, 20, 30 years?
1: Quite dramatically, and I'm sure Yale's not alone with this, although I don't know figures for other libraries. The first fact to set up for the comparison is that Yale has in printed material and ebooks about 16.1 million volumes, not all in Sterling. Of course, we have a library shelving facility in Hamden, uh, uh, a few miles away, which deliveries are made twice a day by van if the book you need is up there. But the contrast is that Yale now has one petrabyte of digital data, $16.6 million, million digital files, which means that the Yale Library has more digital material than it has printed books. There's a joke about the American government, the American Republic, which says it's an insurance company with an army. Well, Yale Library is a digital library with a large building for what's left over. There is a Yale Day of Data where scholars are brought from around the world. Uh, that's been going ongoing for about uh, 10 years now. Uh, the reserve book reading room from my day back in 1963 is now a digital humanities library. And to take a silly example, although illustrative of what might be done, you can view all the covers of Vogue magazine for the entire history of Vogue magazine under Condé Nast and watch the skirts go up and down and measure them and see those changes. Something that, of course, wouldn't have been possible without a lot of human years flipping through paper copies and without an ability to so precisely measure uh, to several decimal points what the difference was. Now, of course, there are more, many more serious uses, but there is now one very large room in the Sterling Memorial Library, just to the left of the main entrance just as big as the l reading room that we discussed, uh, which is uh, totally uh, devoted to digital research of whatever kinds. In terms of the buying of books, many of the professional schools, the medical school first among them, as far back as 2006, stopped buying paper journals. All the material comes in by digital uh, transmission now. The problem for all American libraries, Yale's not least, but I'll give a Yale example, is that these digital journals, like Elsevier and others, there are about three big ones, will sell you their services, but you have to, like your cable TV, even if you never watch the thirty-seven hockey channels, have to pay. For the entire thing so if you don't have if you are not texas A&M, AM in america standing for agricultural and mechanical you still have to buy all the journals of those topics engineering and agriculture even if you won't choose to use them and these owners being capitalists charge per capita So when Yale decided to expand its 12 residential colleges to 14 a few years ago, it became clear that the Yale Library was going to be charged because the standard Yale class was going from 1,200 students a year to 1,600 students a year. And the digital providers were now going to charge per head for those other 400 students even if they never looked at them, looked at the digital resources, which were broader than Yale would have wanted in the first place. And the Yale library had to go back to the various faculties and say, look here, we can't take this economic hit. You're going to have more students. You're going to have a broader group to teach. They're going to need this material. It's going to cost the library and we need to resort the budget among the faculties to sort that out, which had to be done. So these are some of the kind of behind the scenes problems. How do you save digital material? How do you find people that know how to work it? There are many employees in university and probably other libraries today who are called ferals, not a nice name, F-E-R-A-L-S, wild things. Why? They don't have librarian degrees, but they know how to do digital in a way that the librarians in charge are only trying to catch up to. And so libraries are having to expand their budgets to buy this digital material and to expand, again, a budget item, their staffs in order to use this flood of material, which as I say, is now more than 50% of Yale University Library's entire collections. These are modern problems, modern opportunities, but also modern problems.
0: Absolutely fascinating to think that we started in 1656 before there even was a college, much less a university, and now we're all the way up to um, online journals and over 50%, more than 50% being, as you said, digital. Um, I think does a decent job then of bringing us right up to the present of the Yale library, which leaves me only with my final question. Um, Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's about the Yale library that you'd like to preview for us?
1: Ah, um, well, I am doing my book tour at various places uh, in New York and up in New Haven on this new library history. Um, And I don't know, if I have the bandwidth for another history, but, uh, in my other life, uh, I mentioned the Kipling. I am also improbably the first non Brit to be the president of the Kipling society, which a Princeton friend of mine in introducing my talk at the Grolier club said he assumed must be a diversity hire, uh, which the audience laughed at happily. Um, but I uh, uh, have been working on articles about uh, Kipling and Conan Doyle for the Baker Street Irregulars and have an article coming out in a book they'll publish in January. Just submitted something to the Hemingway Review about Kipling's mostly unexamined influence on Hemingway. Um, And I spent part of my light summer vacation up in the University of New Brunswick library, which owns an atlas, 11 pounds on your lap, huge, 100 plates, English table of contents, German maps, which Rudyard Kipling gave Lord Beaverbrook as a house gift in 1912 and annotated the maps in the margin with poetry, scraps of his poetry, some of it repurposed, such that I discovered on the map of Ireland, he uses one of the poems from Puck of Pook's Hill, talking about the picks, Picts, P I C T S, as silent and dangerous rebels to the Romans, but which he appends here to the map of Ireland, where he is seeing the Fenians and the Upraise, up, up, unrest uh, there. So that piece will be uh, uh, it's mounted on the Kipling website now. As a matter of fact, but uh, that piece will be coming out. So I find small interesting things that I can do ten pages on, and uh, 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 keeps me off the streets
0: and actively engaged. So thank you for sharing us that overview i suppose of your other work and while you're off doing it of course um listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled i give these books the history of the yale university library 1656 to 2022 published by oak knoll in 2022 dave thank you so much for being with us on the podcast
1: thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to tell some stories that make me smile